the number of people that are dying is staggering. Uh, more people dying every year of overdoses than uh, who died in all of the Vietnam War. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Excited to have Dr. Nav Kang here in the studio today, and you are the Director of Operations for Behavioral Health Services at Mercy Health in Cincinnati. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Trevor. So along with that position, you're also a council member for Recovery Ohio. That's right. And have been chosen as a fellow for the Obama Foundation inaugural class, which I can't wait to talk about. Very exciting <laughs> stuff. But first, what got you, what interested you and got you into the field of clinical psychology and behavioral health? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, I, I tend to tell the story in, in this kind of way that I fell backwards into a lot of uh, what I find myself doing. Um, I've tried over the last several months to have a, a better understanding that I ended up here uh, as more than just like an accident, but a lot of times it, it feels like that. So... Uh, I grew up here in Cincinnati. Um, um, my family is from India and some uh, of Indian descent. And uh, like most people of Indian descent in the United States, I was supposed to be a, a medical doctor, right? That was like the narrative that was written for me uh, by my parents as I was growing up. And so uh, I went to undergrad thinking I was going to be pre-med and, um, you know, was signed up for like biology, chemistry classes, all that kind of stuff, uh, but took a uh, psychology elective, Psych 101. And, uh, you know, I think I always had a natural curiosity about why people are the way that they are and, you know, what makes us behave in the way that we do and how we see the world and that kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't until then that I had an opportunity to really delve into even a broad understanding of it. Uh, and I was, I was kind of hooked right from there. Uh, I made psychology my minor, and uh, very quickly, uh, by sophomore year, I turned that into my major, much to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> so, um, you know, when you when you work in that field, you find that if you really want to make a bigger impact uh, or a difference in more people's lives, you kind of have to go to the doctoral level of training. And so, I was fortunate to get into Xavier uh, here in Cincinnati. So, I came home and uh, did my graduate training and everything here. Uh, not really knowing what a clinical psychologist actually does, just knowing that if you want to put a dent in the universe from the vantage point of clinical psychology, then you need more than a bachelor's degree. Yeah. And so I um, was fortunate to get into the one school that I applied to. <laughs> <laughs> so on that, uh, Doctor of Psychology, so the way the acronym, it's PsyD. Mm -hmm, okay. That's right, yeah. So at, at Mercy, are you strictly an administrator or do you see patients at all? Um, at this point, uh, most of my time is spent uh, uh, doing administrative functions. Uh, so I've been with Mercy for five and a half years, and my time uh, doing patient care has changed dramatically over that uh, period. So I started you know, more than half time seeing patients. Um, so I would come in and, and have a clinic from about eight o'clock to about one o'clock every day, Monday through Friday. Um, and you know, that that kind of went down to 30% at one point, went back up to 50%. But over the last couple of years, especially, um, I don't directly see 
patients as much anymore. Um, I can anytime. I mean, you know, my office is still right there where we have our inpatient and outpatient programs, but um, we've we've built a team that can that can do that every day, and I'm I'm like less less necessary. It's kind of a weird position to be in when you've trained your whole life to do patient care. So, yeah. um, and the beauty of of Mercy is, and we've we talked about this briefly before, but offers a closed loop system, which is so important. Meaning, all levels of care, inpatient, PHP, which is partial hospitalization, or day treatment. That's those are synonymous, correct? Yep. And then intensive outpatient and continuing care. So to have such a comprehensive program to follow patients all the way through their journey and to stay with them after uh, they're finished with, you know, it has to help retention rates and, and their long-term recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's what our hope is. So the idea of understanding uh, mental illness or substance use disorder as a chronic relapsing medical condition that warrants a healthcare response that, that kind of undergirds a lot of what we do. And so if you're thinking about um, uh, mental health care and our hospital-based services or the, the full continuum that you're describing, then uh, yeah, we would want to have immediate access to emergency and inpatient care um, for adults and for seniors is what we specialize in. Um, you know, children's does a great job with sure. treating children and adolescents. And so, um, they kind of have that, um, you know, book of business, if you will. Uh, but yeah, being able to, to, uh, have someone go right from inpatient into our outpatient program. And when I say right from, I mean, literally like you're leaving the inpatient space and you walk over and you start your day program and, which uh, is so, you know, so invaluable. And it's the same team that's taking care of you. So it's uh, your same doctor, it's your same therapist, it's your same nursing team. There's less nursing when you're in the day program, but it's still the same people that have been working with you in the other space. And so there's relationship there, there's continuity there, uh, there's a seamlessness there. And so we do much of that ourselves. Uh, on the addiction side, it's a little different in terms of how we do it, uh, because Mercy, like most other large health systems in the United States, uh, does not have much in the way of uh, traditional addiction medicine services that we offer ourselves. Instead, what we've done over the last three and a half years is redefine what we do in the settings that we already own. So like emergency rooms, inpatient uh, medical beds, that kind of thing. Um, and instead of building the rest of the continuum ourselves, we have uh, chosen to collaborate with quality uh, addiction treatment providers in the community to create that same type of seamless uh, network of care uh, that still functions in an on-demand fashion. That's great. There's new, I wouldn't say it's new, but recent language, and this I just wanted to get your opinion, from addiction to substance use disorder and all things in between. What is your thought on the switch of that language Yeah, so um, so there, to your point, there's been a lot of language change just recently. And so um, the same idea when it comes to MAT mm -hmm. and what does that acronym stand for? Is it uh, medication-assisted treatment, meaning that the treatment is something else and the medication assists it? Is it medically-assisted treatment, which could theoretically mean something different? Um, some folks recently have started calling it medication for addiction treatment. So then it's just the medicine is all you're talking about then, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
and an, another term that uh, has be, has become more common uh, recently, specifically for patients with opioid use disorder, is MOUD, medications for opioid use disorder. And so, to your point, I think I think my general answer would be that we have called our collaborative work the addiction treatment collaborative very intentionally, because substance use disorder is focused on the use of substances and the biopsychosocial disorder that uh, can result uh, from using a variety of different substances uh, versus addiction, which is, I think, a broader term that captures much more in terms of the part of the brain uh, and the uh, psychosocial aspects of what gets affected um, when someone engages in any addictive behavior or activity. So it, then it, it captures gambling or uh, other things, internet use, et cetera. It's much broader. Yeah. I, I just think it's confusing to people. Yeah. You know, I mean, within the space and within, you know, uh, doctor networks and medical networks, I get it. But, you know, some people, you know, substance use disorder, you know, does that include alcohol? Is that just drugs? So I think it's, I think it's a little bit complicated. I mean, again, I understand it, but trying to, you know, get the word out and and uh, what I'm doing and, and other advocates talking to the general public, I, I think there's some some confusion there. So I just I merely just wanted to get your opinion on it. Yeah, I mean, I would say you, know, you just call you can just call it addiction. Yeah, um, you can ask people what they prefer to call it as well. So it's interesting because a, a variation on on what we're talking about is what do people themselves want to be called. Right, so there is like, how do we refer to the condition that they have? Uh, but then, how do how do people want to be referred to? And so, there's a study done recently that that looked at some of this. Um, some of it's kind of self evident, but no one had actually gone and interviewed a bunch of people and asked them these questions, right? And so, the idea of person centric language kind of bubbled to the top. So instead of addict, which people oftentimes refer to themselves as. Uh, especially people with heroin-associated opioid use disorder. They may call themselves an addict. They prefer to be called you know, a person who uses drugs. Right, because it's part of the rationale behind this, uh, aside from clinical, is that it's demeaning yeah. to it's the stigmatizing. individual. Yeah. So the American uh, Diabetes Association took the term diabetic out of all of their educational and marketing materials. It's a person with diabetes is the preferred person-centric language. And so it's the same idea here, right? Yeah. That a person is more than a quote-unquote addict. They're a person who uses drugs, um, but there's more to that picture than the condition that they might have. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the, the um, survey was interesting because um, people really didn't like terms like addict. People didn't like terms like junkie, so not surprising. Uh, the other thing that was also not surprising is that a lot of times people just like to be called by their name. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Interesting. So on on the topic of behavioral health, which this podcast is truly about, but a lot of people don't know what that term entails. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. The way that I think about it is that behavioral health is an umbrella term. And so if you think about an umbrella term, that means that it's got lots of potential pieces to it or lots of definitions that kind of sit under it. So people... Uh, Sometimes I think uh, confuse 
quote unquote behavioral health was just being a political, uh, politically correct way of referring to mental health or mental illness. There's nothing wrong with saying any of those things. So like mental illness is a thing and mental health is a thing. Mental wellness is a thing, right? which is its own kind of umbrella term. And so behavioral health would encompass mental illness and the treatment of that. And from a um, clinical services standpoint, that's like the core of what behavioral health providers have always done and probably will always do. So it's like the uh, inpatient and outpatient treatment of people with uh, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but then also uh, the logic of behavioral health extends into addiction medicine. And again, comprehensive addiction treatment, so inpatient, outpatient, residential, um, with medication, without medication. So that involves medication, counseling, case management, uh, taking care of someone's spiritual health, et cetera. Um, but the reason we use the term behavioral health is because it also captures a wholly different area of healthcare that is um, sometimes not uh, immediately um, something people are aware of. So uh, if you think about a person with any condition, any chronic condition, hypertension, diabetes, or again, depression, it can be helpful to have experts in human behavior who are helping you in your treatment in making your treatment plan and setting goals in achieving those goals. And so uh, what we see is that the biggest impact that uh, behavioral health can play in healthcare delivery is actually just in chronic disease management overall, whether those chronic diseases are mental illnesses like depression or if they're broader uh, like diabetes or COPD or heart disease. Because in the end, uh, we all need healthy behaviors, which seems like uh, you know some type of a cliched catchphrase, but it's true. Uh, and yet we're all human beings and we struggle with maintaining healthy behaviors almost universally. I mean, uh, you look at any calendar year and how far into the year do you get before most of us have dropped off of whatever New Year's resolution that we've made. And it's not because we didn't want to pursue that goal but it's because it's human nature to be ambivalent about change, to vacillate, to lose motivation, and then pick it back up again. And so in this case of healthcare delivery, it can be helpful to understand the whole picture of what's going on with a person other than just take your medicine, diet, exercise, whatever else you might get recommended. There's people out there that think that substance use disorder addiction and mental illness are completely independent of each other. What do you say to that? And they interweave a lot more than I think people think that they do. Yeah. Um, so uh, what I would encourage people to do is is picture a Venn diagram. I think we, we like things to be um, cleaner than they oftentimes are in the real world. So it'd be nice if there was like this bucket of mental health conditions and a totally separate bucket of uh, addiction or substance use disorders. But uh, the reality is, is like you said, there's a significant overlap. So a lot of people, uh, 8 out of 10, 6 out of 10, depending on how you measure it and which direction you're measuring it in, uh, will overlap. So um, a, a large number of people who have a substance use disorder will also have some mental illness, depression, anxiety, uh, some kind of trauma disorders like PTSD or something like that. Um, and the same goes in the other direction. A lot of people who have a uh, mental illness will um, also develop a substance use disorder. The important thing to understand is why, right? So uh, is someone who has anxiety using substances to, to uh, 
relieve that anxiety. Uh, drinking or uh, using uh, prescribed substances inappropriately or using illicit drugs, whatever it might be, just, you know, in an effort to try to feel better. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what a lot of people do. Yeah. Is it numbing? Or is it uh, something else? But at you know, at the end of the day, the the more of that behavior that we engage in, the more likely it is that we're going to become uh, addicted, quote unquote. And so uh, the the root cause might have been the anxiety, but the person has like both the problems. Can you artificially separate the two? I don't think so, right? Because we're treating a person, not like one part of their brain or another part of their brain. Uh, it's it's funny that we've come to this point where we ask this question about how separate or related are um, our substance use disorders and addiction versus mental illness, uh, when in the past we've all also had this other separation of the mind and the body. So we have this dual uh, this dualism of treating the body, but treating the mind separately. It's all one person. <laughs> you need to treat the entire person. Uh, I have a colleague who um, refers to this as find the neck. We have to find the neck because that connects the top and the bottom mm-hmm. of every person because we are one individual. And you can't really be effective in treating one area without attending to the other. And so that's the true definition of dual diagnosis and co-occurring disorders. Yeah, I mean, dual diagnosis would simply just be having the both of the diagnoses. Right. Like It's super literal that you literally have one diagnosis from this bucket and one diagnosis from that bucket. The thing that's ultimately important is how responsive is the treatment that the person is receiving to the whole picture. Okay. Yeah. I mean, those are terms that kind of fly around Mm -hmm. and and people might be confused about. So um... sometimes it also refers to licensing. And so when you have a, um, a treatment provider that's licensed by the state, they're typically licensed as one or the other. And uh, if you're licensed, let's say, as a mental health provider, then your primary diagnosis has to be a mental illness. And your secondary diagnosis could be a substance use disorder, which is sometimes very literally uh, just how it's documented on paper when your insurance claims are submitted and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know? So tell me about Recovery Ohio. Sure. Yeah. It's, um, it's uh, Recovery Ohio is super exciting. So uh, Governor Mike DeWine was the attorney general uh, of the state of Ohio um, in the previous administration and has a demonstrated track record of, uh, you know, attending to the um, social needs of the state, um, uh, attending to the needs of children and, uh, you know, responding acutely to the opioid epidemic from the attorney general's seat. And so his first action in office when he was elected as governor of the state was to sign an executive order uh, creating Recovery Ohio and creating the position of the director of Recovery Ohio, which is a full department level um, uh, cabinet position with a department that is fully funded underneath uh, her. So uh, Alicia Nelson is the director of Recovery Ohio. Uh, later that same week, he signed another executive order creating the Recovery Ohio Advisory Council, which is a multidisciplinary group of stakeholders from around the state who are meant to advise Recovery Ohio on the work that Recovery Ohio is supposed to do. And that work is meant to uh, synergize the efforts of the various state 
departments and uh, agencies so that there is harmonization in their uh, in their work. So for example, if the Ohio Department of Rehab and Corrections and the Ohio Department of Mental Health and the Ohio Department of Education are all doing things uh, around prevention for mental illness, suicide, drug use, whatever it might be, if they're all working on prevention, is there an opportunity for them to collaborate with each other and ultimately take the ball farther than if they were to just work independently in silos without even knowing what the other party is doing? Yeah. The yeah. answer to those questions is almost always yes. And so if you think, and that's just one example, I just made that up. Sure. Right? I mean, I didn't make it up because they're actually having that discussion, but the idea of uh, that level of communication and collaboration across state departments just frankly doesn't happen for a lot of different reasons. And so Recovery Ohio is meant to take down those barriers between uh, the various agencies across the state, the boards, everything else, and uh, have a potentiating response then, right? Potentiating outcome, meaning one plus one equals three or 15 maybe. Yeah. Do you feel that that's happening? I mean, it's those things are on the table being discussed, but is the collaboration... How long has it been in existence? Yeah, so uh, the governor was uh, inaugurated in January, and so Recovery Ohio was created that week. And so we're uh, ballpark six months in. Uh, And so um, half of that time was also uh, working on the state budget. And uh, I don't know if anyone followed that, but that was a protracted process between the House, Senate, and then the administration. Um, And so, uh, yes, the answer to the question is yes, the work is being done. It's happening right now. Recovery Ohio Council met several times in uh, January, February, and March to create our first, our initial report, which is the framework for the for the next four years of work to be done, 75 recommendations. And uh, it addresses every area from stigma to uh, parity in terms of uh, reimbursement for services, prevention, workforce development, um, uh, treatment, and recovery supports and crisis stabilization and specialty populations like children, people who are in the uh, justice system, uh, and seniors. And so uh, it's, it's quite broad. It's very expansive, obviously, then. Uh, and it's not something that you uh, realize the vision quickly with. Uh, but the work is uh, has started in March, led to the initial report. Uh, and uh, uh, there are now some working subgroups. For example, last week, the Minority Health uh, Working Group met in Springfield. And next week, the Recovery Ohio Council meets with, uh, I believe, all of the uh, uh, department heads from around the state. So it's almost like it, they haven't said it this way, but it almost feels like a cabinet meeting with Recovery Ohio Council being there. That's great. And I don't want to speculate here, but I, I think some states or local governments you know, put things like this in place to show that they're they're covering this topic. I mean, you have direct access to the top officials. It seems like this is truly being taken seriously as a uh, statewide uh, push. Yeah, if you read the executive order that uh, the governor signed to create Recovery Ohio, uh, it's pretty awesome, actually. I mean, like the scope of authority and the obvious push that he wants to make in terms of making this work be real, you know, in terms of making it legit, uh, is, is evident there. But I, I've seen that throughout, and 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 just transparently, I wouldn't participate in the work if it wasn't right. You know, if it was just like a dog and pony show kind of thing, it, it wouldn't be worth the time. And so um, it, it uh, to, to date has definitely proven to be um, uh, effective in organizing and opening the channels of communication as we need them to be 
um, for the work to get done in a way over time. Because again, is, this is partly playing into a longer term strategy yeah. uh, of redefining how how this uh, people across the state, eleven and a half million people, view and access uh, mental health and addiction and behavioral health in general. Yeah, there's nothing more important than mental health. I'm sure I'm uh, biased to that, but is there in this work? crystal ball is there any plan to get this into the curriculum of middle school high school i mean i just think it would be so beneficial for kids to have learning about that you know education about the importance of mental health in you know in their daily weekly classes even if it's an elective yeah. No, it's a, it's a tremendous question. Uh, it is in one of the recommendations from the Recovery Ohio report. I can't remember which one it is. 18 maybe. I'm just making that up. But yes, it's in the it's in the recommendation set, but but more importantly, um there is a um coalition that is building the core members of which has already formed that would seek to uh, advance what you're talking about. There's also precedent for it. So the state of Virginia in 2016, the state of New York in 2018, and then Texas just a couple of months ago have all passed legislation mandating mental health education in public schools K through 12. I didn't know that. That's And so um, that is then a political exercise in some way because to do that requires funding, right? You're not going to just LinkedIn the school day. Um you know, for an hour for all kids to get mental health education. Uh, so if that's not the way to do it, then you need to take something else out of the school curriculum or modify something that exists already. Uh, and then you still need to bring in the expertise to provide the mental health education. Uh, so there is uh, legislation being proposed in the state of Ohio uh, that would theoretically pursue a similar angle. And so, um, it is one of my great hopes, uh, even though we actually live in Northern Kentucky, uh, that this kind of thing would become standard in education, uh, not just awareness about mental health or mental illness or addiction or the dangers of drugs and these kinds of things, uh, but actual training. So what we find with kids, uh, and frankly, people in general, is that skills training is, is what really makes the difference for us when it comes to uh, prevention being effective. So for kids, it might be refusal skills training. So if someone offers you a drug or a substance or whatever it is, and you you literally know how to say no because you have practiced how to say no, how to understand what's being asked of you and what the dangers are, but then actually refusing that. But wholly separate from that, it's related, but separate still is training uh, on emotion regulation and distress tolerance. So learning how to cope with the ups and downs of life because there are invariably going to be downs. There are going to be tragedies, and are we equipped to handle them? The fact that there is uh, science backing uh, our, ability, uh, our ability to be resilient in the face of adversity and the fact that we don't propagate it in, as part of our routine educational system is something that we have to fix, right? And so the better trained we all are to not just like know our history or know algebra or know biology and science, um, but then also to know how our own emotions work and how our interpersonal functioning impacts our behavior and our thoughts and feelings and how those relate to our relationships. Um, that's critical to create well-rounded people. Yeah, and at 11, 12, 13, being in middle school, which is tough, 
But now, especially tough with social media. Yeah. I mean, everything is instant and you can be left out of something. And, you know, adolescent suicide is, you know, out of control. And having that education, I, I think, would be because I know sure as can be that I didn't have any coping skills. So being able to start your pre-adult life out with that, you know, with those learnings and and skills is huge. This is so why the biopsychosocial model of addiction and mental illness and just chronic disease in general is so important. Biopsychosocial model, there's a biological piece to all of this stuff. There's a psychological piece. There's a social piece. And so um, I always like the phrase, nature hates a vacuum. So when we have something that we need to cope with, whether it is like a disappointment at work or at school uh, or a family tragedy, or to your point, it could just be a social media slight, right? But to that person, it means a lot. Uh, on the outside, it might look like something minor. Regardless, if we have something that we need to cope with, if we haven't been taught those social skills, those coping skills, if we haven't observed those coping skills that are healthy from others, then we won't know what is an effective coping skill. And again, nature hates a vacuum. So we'll find something. And so if we have been exposed to, uh, by watching our parents or others, that the way to cope is with a six-pack, then guess what we're going to do? We're going to cope with a six-pack. If we learn that uh, it's good to cope with meditation, yoga, exercise, writing, whatever it might be, then guess what we're going to do? We're going to cope with those things. And so it is very concretely a training exercise for kids to learn how their minds and their bodies work. Yeah. Which means it can be done. Sure. Absolutely. It's, it's you know, it's habit. It's it's repetition. And it's, you know, right. what, what you're surrounded by is what you do. So that's great. So this Obama Foundation opportunity, what, what a, first of all, prestigious appointment. It's very surreal. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah. Um, so the... Um, uh, Obama Presidential Center is a separate entity that is uh, that is a uh, building and campus that is uh, proposed to be built in uh, Chicago and is not built yet. Uh, the Obama Foundation is the organization, and the Obama Foundation seeks to uh, connect and empower the next generation of leaders uh, who will be then better equipped to address the most pressing problems of our time. And so they have a number of programs that they're running all over the world. Uh, the African leaders, so 200 leaders from Africa identified every year, go, go through leadership development training um, to understand uh, what is the future of Africa and how can they participate in creating that future. Um, the uh, Obama scholars uh, uh, actually get a degree from either Columbia University or the University of Chicago um, in uh, um, public policy or international development. And so they actually go through a curriculum. They actually live in Chicago or in New York, and they uh, take classes at those universities, and they earn their degree. Um, I guess the the um, uh, at the other end of the continuum is the Community Leadership Corps, which is meant for folks who are just getting started on their civic engagement journey. So um, it, that has uh, taken place in a few different cities around the United States, identifying several hundred young people who have started to do some work in uh, civic engagement or in community leadership space. Um, if, you, if you look at all of the programs, chief among them is meant to be the Obama Fellows. And so uh, it is a disciplined, diverse group 
of uh, community-minded leaders who are working all over the world to address the most intractable problems of our time in their communities, uh, working in new ways to solve these problems that otherwise uh, could be polarizing uh, or difficult to, to even make any uh, headway on if you weren't uh, reaching across the lines that historically divide us. So the fellowship is meant to do two things. One is lift up the work that is being done in that way, uh, but then also identify those leaders who with uh, some extra push and development and training uh, can blossom into uh, more effective leaders in the areas that they're working in or potentially beyond uh, later in their careers. So uh, we're identified as being at a tipping point. In other words, the work has some demonstrable merit. It's working. Uh, it is making some impact, but we need help. We need a platform. We need training. Uh, we need the push to go over the tipping point, uh, ourselves as people, as leaders, and the work itself uh, in order to make the uh, the potential that we think we have be achieved. And so, uh, yeah, 20,000 applications. There were 20 of us that were selected last year. It's a two-year uh, non-residential fellowship, which means that you live where you live, you work where you work, but you're plugged into this enormous uh, machine and network of people who are working on literally every different area uh, of uh, of the world and and uh, in every type of problem that you can imagine and uh, having the opportunity to learn from each other. Um, uh, alongside the people, uh, you know, from the extended Obama family. And you have, you get together four times a year, is that right? For an extended period, like a couple weekend times a year, or something? Yeah. Uh, for about a week, we get together uh, twice a year. So uh, Chicago a couple of times now, uh, DC, uh, our next gathering should be sometime in October. And there, they just, uh, I don't know if inducted or is that a right word, but the next class, you were the inaugural class. Correct. Now there's a next uh, next class that just came in of 20 more. Right. And you said that of the 40, there's two from Cincinnati. Right. Which is, which is really cool. Yeah. Shout out to something. Derek Brazil at Mortar uh, here in Cincinnati. Um, yeah. It does say something about Cincinnati and the energy here, um, the, uh, the effort and the desire to work in new ways, again, across those lines that historically might divide us. And to say that, uh, you know, we have an ability to make an impact um, and to, like I like to say, uh, like Steve Jobs used to say, put a dent in the universe. Yeah. You said there was a funny story about how and why you applied. Yeah. So uh, social media uh, has come up a couple times in our conversation. I'll bring it up in a different way. So uh, targeted ads on Facebook, I kind of give myself away politically, but it came up as a targeted Facebook ad that um, the Obama Foundation is opening applications for their fellowship. So um so I'm a fan of targeted ads now on Facebook. Uh, I have no problem with that. But uh, but in all seriousness, I mean, I just, I, I wanted to write the application because writing clarifies my thoughts, right? And so it took like five hours to write the essays. Um, but really like the whole thing was never about getting selected or thinking that it would have any consequence of putting in the application. Um, I liken it to buying a lottery ticket I don't know if you ever bought a lottery ticket oh, before, yeah. but sure. you know, you'd spend a couple of bucks and it's not really because you think you're going to win the lottery. I mean, of course you hope that you do, but really the purchase of the lottery ticket is you're spending $2 for the entertainment value to be able to imagine what would I do with a billion dollars or whatever it is. And, you know, I've, I've bought a few here and there in my life, but I can't remember when I've actually watched the lottery drawing. 
Right. <laughs> that comes yeah. after you buy the ticket because it's not like it's not about that for me. And so this was about um, uh, organizing my thoughts around the work that we're doing uh, with the Addiction Treatment Collaborative uh, and, and then the entertainment value of potentially meeting um, the Obamas and uh, having, uh, you know, the opportunity to, to learn from them in some capacity. You know? What was it like to meet them? Uh, surreal. Um there was a moment where uh, where President Obama was talking to me one to one, and I can't honestly remember exactly what he was saying because I kept thinking in my mind like his face is right there, like he's he's literally standing right in front of me right now, you know. Um, but but it was very humbling um, that they would spend as much time as they both have with us. Um, that they would uh, give of themselves and their insight and, um, uh, you know, answer our questions and um, and dialogue with us and learn about us as people and our families and our work. Uh, very humbling, for sure. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. That's really, really cool. So back to Cincinnati, what would you say the state of behavioral health is in our region? I think it's important for people to know that uh, whether you're talking about uh, mental health, mental illness, addiction, uh, or even stigma, uh, like in the broader sense, regardless of which area specifically, uh, this community has made absolutely tremendous strides. So obviously we have this like international recognition around our addiction treatment network of care and, and how we all work together to provide people access to quality treatment on demand. Great. Um, when it comes to, uh, to mental health care, the number of providers that we have, uh, the number of inpatient beds, the number of outpatient providers, uh, it, is, uh, it is an enormous high-quality uh, network uh, between all the different competitive players that are out there. I mean, everyone does a good job. It is very difficult to find people who are not doing good work in this space. Children's Hospital has more beds than anybody uh, for inpatient psychiatry. I don't think most people know that. Uh, and so uh, all of that being said, the need still outpaces the supply, like the demand for services uh, still outpaces the services that are available. And so we're still encumbered with wait times, uh, especially on the mental health and psychiatry side of things. Um, but it's important to know that on the addiction treatment side, we've gotten wait times down from 50 plus days in Hamilton County just a few years ago to 48 hours or less. Uh, that is critical for people to understand that if someone is looking to make a change, to get into treatment for addiction, uh, especially that that treatment is available now. That is atypical. That is not the case across the United States. Uh, and Cincinnati is different in that way. But again, I think what undergirds all of this is the conversation around stigma. Always progress to be made on this topic. Always more that we can do. Uh, the breadth and the the diversity of populations that we as a society stigmatize has almost no end, right? But if we're just talking about mental health, mental illness, addiction, SUD, all of that stuff, uh, we, we've turned some uh, pretty profound corners over the last few years. Uh, that's both within healthcare, within the healthcare community, the professional community, but then also the community at large. Um, so I, I remember um, it was uh, either at the end of 2018 or very early this year uh, that the Cincinnati Enquirer um, wrote an article, Terry DeMio wrote, wrote a piece uh, about a survey that was done by the Center for Addiction Treatment. Several hundred people responded to it. Uh, eight out of 10 people agree 
with the American Medical Association's definition of addiction as a disease. And more than half of people uh, believe that you should seek treatment from a professional. 90% of people know someone with a substance use disorder. Um, that number is probably actually 100% because these things tend to be underreported, but just the fact that 90% of people responded affirmatively. So I think we start to understand that this is an everybody problem. This is not a problem for that other group over there mm -hmm. or somewhere else in town. Yeah. This is everywhere. This is everybody. This is our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. Uh, this is part of the human condition. And, and uh, treatment is warranted. Treatment by professionals uh, using science um, is warranted. And if we didn't have that understanding, I don't know that we could have made the progress that we have across the board that we have in the last several years uh, that I've been describing. Uh, it's 2019, and it's hard to get 80% of people to agree to anything. Mm -hmm. But people in Cincinnati seem to agree <laughs> in this area, more than half, that uh, there is a uh, there is a um, respectful and compassionate way forward when it comes to behavioral health, uh, and that we all have a role to play in uh, propagating that narrative. How, do you know how many people responded to that survey? It was, I, if I recall correctly, it was six hundred something. Don't quote me, but uh, I believe it was between six and seven hundred. Yeah, and no matter the size, uh, the stats don't lie, but. A lot of people, as you know, have a problem with the disease conversation. So it's good to know that people are you know, putting their flag in the ground one way or the other because um, it's kind of you know leveling things out and uh, educating people on this stuff. So we talked about stigma uh, and something else we talked about before uh, is the opioid epidemic gets the majority of the attention these yeah. days and the, the lack of... Uh, concentration on on the other drugs of choice, if you will, and, and other parts of, of mental health. Uh, I want to talk about that. And then you said there's also more divides within that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the opioid epidemic is hard to ignore, right? Whether it is the uh, first phase, as the CDC called it, with prescription pills, the second phase with heroin, or now the third phase that we're in with synthetic opioids like fentanyl, the number of people that are dying is staggering. Uh, more people dying every year of overdoses than uh, who died in all of the Vietnam War. Uh, a plane full of 200 people crashing every day. I mean, how many days would it be in a given week uh, if a plane full of people were crashing that we'd shut down all the airports and that kind of thing, right? Wednesday? I mean, would, it, would we make it to Thursday? Probably not, right? And so it's hard to ignore the scope of mortality, Um we're looking at potential 700,000 more people to die nationally by 2025 if we don't do something. And so uh, I think it gets a lot of attention for that reason. But uh, we shouldn't forget that suicide rates have increased by 25% since the turn of the century, 20 years, 25% increase. Uh, last year, uh, 88,000 people died from alcohol use disorder. And so uh, when you total all of it up, we have about 200,000 plus preventable deaths every year in this country from all of these different behavioral health conditions. And the amount of suffering for the people who don't die or the family members and friends that they leave behind uh, is incalculable. There's actually people who have tried to calculate these things. And believe me, it's like billions and billions and billions of dollars, societal cost uh, and lost productivity in the justice system and a bunch of other stuff. 
Um, and so, so yeah, the opioid epidemic gets a lot of uh, publicity uh, and a lot of attention, rightfully so because of the the immediacy of the mortality and everything else. But it's it's important for us to not forget the rest of the picture. And what's also important is to make sure that as we develop solutions that appear to be working in uh, decreasing mortality, increasing quality of life, in defining quality treatment, we have to make sure that that's accessible for everybody. Uh, some of the reporting from this year uh, from Baltimore and and even national um, reviews from like the CDC appear to indicate that not everybody is benefiting from the translation of science into practice. So uh, our our rural communities uh, getting the benefit of the uh, uh, of the knowledge that we have, um, or is that going to um, our suburban communities more? Uh, the same for our urban settings. Uh, are our urban communities getting the amount of attention that is being given to our suburban communities? The answers to these questions tend to be no. And so uh, from a geographic uh, disparity standpoint, there is work to be done. There is also work to be done when it comes to racial disparity. And so are more people, uh, are more white people getting access to good treatment than uh, the black community? Uh, and the overdose rates uh, within the black community tend to be going up faster where they're going up than for the white community or for the majority community. And they are going down slower in communities where they're going down. And so uh, we have to be mindful of making the countermeasures that we have developed as a scientific and treatment community available to all. Uh, and again, that's just within the, the opioid epidemic space. Uh, methamphetamine uh, use is on the rise. Uh, uh, from an interdiction standpoint, law enforcement is seizing more and more uh, meth uh, in large geographic areas, including locally. And so uh, we have to have good treatment for people with stimulant use disorder. That's a technical term for like uh, meth or amphetamine oh, really? use. It's stimulant use disorder, right? <laughs> and so uh, the, the treatment there and the research there has a lot of catching up to do when it comes to what we know about alcohol use disorder or opioid use disorder. And so uh, so we need more research and we need more practice when it comes to stimulant use disorder, or else we're going to have plenty of people dying from that. Uh, heart attacks and strokes and everything else that comes when, when you use uh, uh, meth. Uh, and, and then if we zoom out a little bit further and get outside of the uh, substance use space and we start talking about uh, you know more traditional mental illness, quote unquote, um, same questions around access to care and quality care and uh, whether care is paid for, reimbursed by insurance in a way that makes it sustainable for the providers to even stay in business. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of there's there's discussion on the racial disparity because 40 years ago, crack was mowing people down and right. killing staggering numbers of people. And then now the uh, white community predominantly, I think, is being, you know, initially being plagued with the uh, opiates and yep. and they're getting that that demographic is getting all this attention and and care even though the you know the the immediacy was there then so yeah. it makes we have to learn from our past and we can't repeat the same mistakes and there has to be equity in how we deliver our solutions across the board geographically um, socioeconomic status race etc yeah do you feel like since you've been five and a half years or just in your research, even in grad school, that we're making headway on this, on stigma around behavioral health? I mean, I might be myself a little biased. 
ironically, in, when answering this question. Um, but but yes, my answer is yes. I think that we could not have made the progress that we have when it comes to standing up n- new ways of caring for patients or even just defining the fact that we should care for patients with substance use disorder in the traditional healthcare setting. The idea of mainstreaming addiction treatment or behavioral health treatment into routine medical care, uh, believe it or not, is kind of controversial because it just hasn't been done that way in the past. And so whether it's stigma or it's inertia, like the momentum of just doing something the way that we've always done it before, if you're going to change how we do things, then there has to be a willingness to put in the energy and time and resources to change how we do things. And if we had stigma be as big of a barrier as it was in the past, I don't know that we could have come as far as we have even now. Plenty of work to be done, so don't get me wrong about that. Um, But I think... Again, surveys like what Kat did uh, and just our engagement with the community around things like syringe exchange and harm reduction, Narcan distribution, et cetera. I think those things indicate that there is a willingness to be open to a dialogue around things that used to be taboo or controversial and what have you. So it's uneven. There's work to be done. Uh, from a harm reduction standpoint, uh, Cincinnati hasn't really had a conversation around supervised injection sites, let's say, for opioid use disorder. Um the, the it's still against federal law. So if you look at Philadelphia as a case example, that community is interested in having such sites. However, the feds will not allow it because it's against federal statute. So, um, you know, would it even make sense for us to have a conversation like that in Cincinnati if we can't actually stand it up? I don't know. It could perpetuate or, or, or further the dialogue around stigma at the least. But what we have done is say that syringe exchange is a scientifically backed method of engaging people with substance use disorder uh, into uh, recovery. Uh, It can prevent secondary infections like HIV and hepatitis, uh, but also people who go through a syringe exchange are three to five times more likely to enter into treatment and three times more likely to stay in treatment. Mm -hmm. And so um, the fact that we have a very robust syringe exchange operated by public health across Southwest Ohio and in Northern Kentucky. There's multiple agencies doing this work in multiple jurisdictions, which means that local uh, leaders and community residents have to allow those services to operate in their communities. The fact that all of that agreement has been there and we have such a robust syringe exchange um, service running across our region is a testament to the work that's been done around stigma and answering people's questions and people being willing to be curious uh, and uh, and to learn more about this space. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, extraordinarily confident in the future of our, uh, at least our region with, with folks like yourself out there doing the work that you're doing and uh, having a a young, fresh look at it. So, and I know you're a busy guy, so I really appreciate you taking the time to spend a few minutes with us talking about uh, such an important topic. So uh, good luck with the Obama thing and everything else that you're doing. And th- and thanks again for being here. Thank you, Trevor, for the uh, gracious invitation to be here, but then also for doing your part too, right? I mean, I always say we all have a role in uh, in addressing the various epidemics that we are facing. Right, whether it's suicide, addiction, loneliness, um, and so you have found your role in helping people grapple with these topics in a way that they might not otherwise were it not for your podcast. So thank you for inviting me to be here, but thank you for the work that you're doing more broadly too. Thanks for listening. 
I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.